0: I would encourage you to take your Bible, if you would, and open to the Gospel of Matthew and chapter 28. Today we're finishing up a brief series as we've been looking at the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, it says that He, that's Jesus, presented Himself alive to them, that's the disciples, after His suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. After Jesus rose from the dead, He appeared to the disciples over a period of forty days before He ascended to heaven. However, after the resurrection Sunday, we have very, very limited information in Scripture about what actually transpired during those 40 days. It's interesting though, as I've been leading us in this study over the past month, that despite the limited amounts of material in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts chapter 1, each one of these accounts relates one common theme and message that Jesus talked about during those 40 days. And if you were here last week and Uh, we, we watched a video presentation from our missionary partner in the Philippines, John and Hannah. And John, besides giving a little report, he also, he's a teacher at heart, and he gave a little message. And you might remember, he said during that, he said, when you're reading the Scripture and something is repeated, you can count on the fact that it is important. It's significant. And so for... This theme to be reiterated in each of the Gospels and in Acts by Jesus during His last days here between the resurrection and the ascension, we can be assured that what is here in Matthew 28 is something that is of utmost importance to us. You see, three years earlier, the disciples had answered the call to follow Jesus. And they followed Him around for... Three years. They had come to believe, as Peter so boldly and plainly confessed, that Jesus was the Christ. He is the Messiah, the Son of God. And they came to believe that. And they knew that according to the the Old Testament prophets that the Messiah would come. He would vanquish their enemies, the enemies of Israel. He would set up and establish the kingdom of God. And so they were looking for this, and they were absolutely blindsided when Jesus was arrested, tortured, crucified, dead, and buried. Despite the fact, as we have noted and talked about, that Jesus had told them it would happen, they just didn't get it, they didn't listen, and and so as we saw a few weeks ago, when on Resurrection Sunday that afternoon, before He would appeared to the eleven disciples in the upper room, actually ten, because Thomas was missing, but before that, there were two, Cleopas and a friend who were kind of the outside circle of disciples who were had given up and were walking home towards Emmaus. And Jesus appeared to them. And if you remember the words, Jesus said, Oh slow of heart to believe all that the Lord has spoken through the prophets, He said. Jesus went on. Was it not necessary, according to the prophets, that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? The problem was that they weren't expecting Jesus to die, but the Scripture was plain. But now that Jesus has been raised from the dead, Cleopas and his buddy, hoofed it back and told the disciples and then Jesus appeared to them that resurrection night. Then we, we saw that it was a week later before they saw Jesus again. And then last week we saw that Jesus appeared to them the third time up in Galilee. It was two, maybe three weeks or so after the resurrection. And while the Scripture doesn't tell us, it appears to me, and it seems logical as well, that there is one big question that is looming in the minds of the disciples that they are longing to answer, and that is, what do we do now? What's going to happen now? And what what are we supposed to be doing? Jesus has risen from the dead, but things aren't like they were And what do we do now? Well, the one message that Jesus has repeated again and again is the answer to that question. That question is still a crucial question for us today as believers in Jesus Christ. In my years of pastoring, I have noticed that there are some believers in Christ who... They're believers in Christ, but they have no passion for life. They have no motivation, no drive, no direction in life. Some are simply trudging through the boring humdrum of every day, just biding time, wondering, why am I here? Is there really a purpose for my life? Is there really a reason to get out of bed in the morning? I find other believers in Christ who spend their time worrying and fretting about what you know what they're going to do in their career, what, they're, what schools they're going to go to, or, or worrying and fretting about some major life decision here or there. And they worry and they fret wondering what direction should I go? Some believers are simply consumed by achievement. They already have plenty of goals and they are consumed and occupied and preoccupied and stressed, moving forward, trying to accomplish whatever it is that they are aiming at. And in those rare moments when some of those folks stop and take a breath and slow down for a minute, many of them wonder, What if one day I finally reach the top of this ladder of success that I'm climbing and I get there and discover that it's leaning against the wrong building? You see, it's a vital question for us today as it was for the disciples then. What now? Jesus is alive. He is risen from the dead. I'm a follower of Jesus, but what now? The answer is found here in this passage before us this morning, here in Matthew 28. One crucial, primary, essential message. Are you ready to read it? Matthew 28, let's begin in verse 16. Let's read it together. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Familiar words. Often called what? The Great Commission. You'll notice here as we began reading that the disciples are in Galilee. Uh, that's where we left them last week in John chapter 21, after the third time that Jesus has appeared to them. This time it says they're at on the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. They had been told to meet Jesus on the mountain, but apparently, as we saw in John 21, they had, for whatever reason, either not gone to the mountain or they had gone there, got discouraged, got bored, whatever, and gone down to the Sea of Galilee where they went back to fishing. Having met Jesus there, they're back on the mountain where they're supposed to be, and now Jesus appears to them. The eleven, he says, the eleven are there, but perhaps there are others there also, which makes sense to me and explains why it says, but some doubted. There were some who still weren't sure that Jesus had raised from the dead. The eleven are firmly convinced by now because they've already seen Jesus three times. But if there were others there, they might have had questions. Perhaps, as some scholars suggest, this time here on the mountain where Jesus meets with them is the time that Paul refers to over in 1 Corinthians 15 as he's going through the the resurrection appearances of Christ and he, he says that Jesus appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at one time. And perhaps this is that time. It would make sense if the mountain is the mountain where he fed the 5,000, where already he had met in, over the over the years with large crowds teaching that perhaps this is that place. And as I was reading this and a few other things this week, I was just kind of overwhelmed as I realized that in just a few days I'm going to stand there. And uh, just for your, a little heads up for you, I'm going to be gone for a couple of weeks. And I thank you for giving me the opportunity to to make a trip of a lifetime and uh, go over and see these places that I have read about so long and uh, what a joy that will be. And I think when I'm there on that place, on that hill, where they think that he fed the 5,000, that uh, I'll think of these words as Jesus gave this charge to the disciples. Familiar words, and I've mentioned that it's an off-repeated theme over these 40 days. At least on three occasions, Jesus says these similar or similar things. Let me just go back very quickly to the night of the resurrection when Jesus appeared there in the upper room with the, uh, with the ten disciples. Th- Thomas was not there, you'll recall. But Mark records that it was there that Jesus... Said this, he says, and he said to them, "Go into the, all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation." Luke, in his account, again that same night, he says, "Thus it is written." Jesus is talking. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day from rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. You see, the Great Commission was given that night of the resurrection. John put it this way, and I love the way he says it. John records Jesus' words saying, As the Father has sent me, so even so I am sending you. Jesus is saying, Guys, you're ready. It's your turn. Kind of like, takes me back to being. Uh, a teenager, that first time when Dad looked at me and said, Son, you're ready. Very hesitatingly. (laughs) Here's the the, the keys to the car. (laughs) I I trust you, kind (laughs) of, with it. Jesus, that resurrection night, was saying, Guys, you're ready. I'm trusting you with the mission. Last week in John 21, we looked as they were there uh, at the Sea of Galilee and that ill-fated fishing trip, the failed fishing fiasco where those fishermen went down, they fished all night, caught nothing, they were embarrassed. And the real point of that story, you'll recall, is Jesus is reminding them that taking them back to when He first called them as disciples and said, I'm calling you to something higher than catching fish, I'm calling you to be fishers of men. Acts chapter 1, Luke records there in Acts 1, Jesus' final words before He ascends to heaven as He has gathered the disciples there on the, on the Mount of Olives. And His last words, you'll recall, Acts 1, eight. but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, the Great Commission is not just in Matthew. It's in every Gospel. It's in Acts. It wasn't just given once. It was given resurrection night. He was given just before He ascends. It's given here in Matthew 28 sometime in, in between. And my guess is if Jesus met other times with His disciples, He probably said it every time He got with them. Guys, here's the job. And so let's go look back at these familiar words. We need to look at them often and remember them because they are significant, they are important They are crucial to understanding who we are as believers in Christ and what is our purpose and what is the mission. And they're essential for us to review again and again because the tendency is for you and me to forget. The tendency is for you and me not to actually forget that it's there, but in practice to set it aside and to get focused on other things is why Jesus repeated it again and again, and why we need to review it again and again. So as we just quickly, as I unpack this, I'm just going to read through, and I want to note seven key words or phrases that I think grab the major points of this powerful mission. Verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. The first key word is this authority. Jesus has all authority. Not some authority, not a little bit of authority, not a lot of authority. How much authority? All. Doesn't leave anything out. All authority. He is supreme sovereign. When Jesus wants to get something done, He doesn't have to ask permission of anyone. When Jesus wants to accomplish something, He doesn't have to convene a committee. He doesn't have to get feasibility studies done. He is sovereign. He is in charge. He has all authority. He has all power. And that has some significant Ramifications to you and me as we look to carry out the mission. So because Jesus is in charge, we must obey Him. It's not optional. Jesus isn't an authority offering a suggestion. He is the supreme, sovereign authority of the universe giving instructions and commands. We must do this simply because Jesus has told us to. Jesus' authority also, because He is in charge, it lets us understand that you and I have security. Some of us live in fear, but we ought not. Sometimes we live in fear that we may not have what we need, that we will be in desperate poverty and, and lacking what we need. How can I accomplish whatever it is I think God wants me to do because I don't have the resources to do it? Guess what? His resources are unlimited. And the Supreme Authority will enable us and equip us to do whatever needs to be done. We have security that we will have provision. We also have security that we will have Protection. You know the ambassadors of the United States are sent out with the full protection of the United States. How much more when God sends out his ambassadors, we go out with the protection of God. We need not fear. Not a thing will happen to us that God will not that God does not allow and that God does not have a purpose for. We need not fear. So many Christians live in fear of what's going to happen with the economy. They live in fear of what this president or the former president or the next president is going to do or what some dictator over there might do or what some terrorist group over there might do. And we live in fear and we ought not because Jesus Christ is the sovereign. He has all authority. Because Jesus has all authority, we can also understand that when we go out to follow Him and to embrace His mission, we can be assured that what He wants done will happen. He will accomplish His purpose. If you read the end of the book, go to the book of Revelation, guess who wins? Jesus. We can have confidence that when we go out to... To follow Him, when we embrace His mission, He will accomplish His purpose through us. Isn't that good news? Because I don't know if you're like me, but I'll tell you what, I look in the mirror and I realize I am incapable and I am unworthy. What good news to know that when we go out to follow Christ, we are following the One who has all authority. Our success does not depend on our great ability. Our success is all about His sovereignty and His power working through us. He's simply looking for folks who are willing. Verse 19 Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. The second key word I want to notice is this word going. It says there go, but literally, As you probably know if you've studied this passage before, it's a participle. Going as you go or as you are going, make disciples. It's not a command, it's just an assumption that we are moving. It's an assumption that we are going. May I say, by the way, that the Bible nowhere anywhere advocates, tolerates, or condones laziness. Many of us have temptation to laziness. We have a propensity for laziness. But it is not a godly thing. It's not a biblical thing. The Word of God calls for you and me to be productive. We just go to the very first command in the Bible. God creates man. He says, go, be fruitful, be productive, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. That means harness the earth. Take the raw materials of the earth and make something of it. We're to be productive. But it's more than that here. He says, as you go, He's expecting us to be moving. He's expecting us to live productive lives. But the question comes, where are we going? The answer simply is what we saw last week at the end of John 21 when Jesus says to Peter, after everything else, He finally says to Peter, follow Me. Where are we going? It's not a place. It is a way of life. We follow Jesus to live like Jesus would live. The point is, in our going, wherever we are, and whatever else we do in life, that we have a higher purpose than just going through the motions of life on earth. We are going through life living for Jesus. Again, whatever your occupation, your career, your job, wherever you live, we are going through life living for Jesus. That's the point. And we are living intentionally. And here's the command, the next big word or phrase, make disciples. This is the one command in the passage. Make disciples. That's learners or followers of Jesus. This is more than simply evangelizing, sharing the good news of how to know Jesus. It's more than getting people to just pray a prayer, make a decision, walk down an aisle. What this is, is saying, I am going through life following Jesus and I am actively, as I live life, I am trying to bring others to join in following Jesus. Come along with me. We're to be followers of Jesus who make more followers of Jesus. The fourth phrase that I notice here is he says we are to make disciples of all nations. Answering the question, who is it that we are supposed to be reaching? Who is it that we're supposed to be bringing along to be followers of Jesus? And the answer is all nations. Literally the word there is ethnos from which we get ethnic. It it means all peoples, all people groups. Jesus is saying very clearly we must take this message to all of them. It's not just people like us, it's people very different from us. People who look different, people who speak different languages, people who have entirely different cultures. We're to be bringing them to be followers of Jesus. I don't know if you've counted recently, but there are over 17,000 distinct people groups in the world. I have not counted personally. I'm taking that from the Joshua Project. According to them, 7,079 of those people groups still remain unreached. Meaning that there are less than 1% of that, those people who are Christian and there is no known church planting movement operating among them. They're unreached with the gospel. A few years ago, actually a decade or so ago, we had a missions conference here. We've had one every year, but our speaker one year was Robertson McQuilkin. He wrote a book called The Great Omission. A little play on words on this Great Commission. And the big question of the book is, how can it be that there are so many unreached peoples in the world so many unreached people groups, and so few Christians who are going to them? That's a great question. Because the, it ought to be a priority for us as believers. That is why at this church, we make a big deal about partnering with people who are going where we are not and to people perhaps that we cannot. Like John and Hannah we saw last week working on Paradise Island among a people group to whom we could not go if we wanted to. But they're there and we're supporting them and we're praying for them and standing with them as they carry the good news of Jesus and are making disciples on Paradise Island. That's why we do that as a church, partnering with dozens of missionaries. But it also needs to be not just what we support out there, but what we are doing here. We are busy reaching out to the peoples around us and and what we discover is that in our day and time, much of the world is coming here. They may be in your neighborhood. They are in our community. One unreached people group in the world is in St. Louis. The Bosnians are here. Folks, We need to be active in reaching the nations. The next two words in this verse, verse 19 and 20, tell us how we're to get this done. What it is that we need to do as we make disciples. Baptizing, He says, them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We are to be baptizing those that we reach and bring along as followers of Jesus, to be very clear, baptism doesn't save anyone. You can be baptized; it doesn't save you. If if baptism, if water would save people, then goodness gracious, let get let's get hoses and buckets and let's go start dousing the world. But that's not it. Baptism is uh, being saved is by simply trusting. Jesus, believing Jesus as to be your Savior. We're saved by faith, the Scripture says. If you're here this morning, you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He wants you to know that God loves you. He sent Jesus to pay for your sin. He invites you to trust Him. And if you do, the Bible says your sins are forgiven. You have eternal life in heaven. It's that simple. So what's the purpose of baptism? Why do we do it? Baptism is simply an outward sign of an inward faith. It is an outward expression of an inward commitment. Baptism is a public way that separates the tire kickers from the car buyers. It's a public way of, of separating those who are the onlookers, the spectators, from those who are the team players. We do it because Jesus said, do it. It's not what saves us, but it's the sign. It is the expression of those who are trusting Christ. So for that, I will say this. If you're here this morning, you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and you have never been baptized, I would ask the question, why not? Jesus has said it. He's commanded it. Pastor Dyer, when he wrote a book on baptism, it's called Baptism, the Believer's First Obedience. If you're here and you haven't been baptized and you're a believer in Christ, I wish you'd talk to me, talk to Pastor Dyer, talk to Pastor Aaron, talk to any of our elders. We would love to help you take that first step of obedience as a follower of Jesus Christ. The next word, verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Those who we bring along to start following Jesus, we need to teach them. They need to learn God's Word. They need to learn what Jesus says. But if you'll notice carefully, Jesus said it's more than teach them. He says teach them what's next. To observe. To do. To obey everything that I've commanded. Jesus isn't interested in getting a lot of spiritual eggheads. People who know the Bible, but... It's made no difference in their life. Jesus is looking to see those who are transformed by truth, who are transformed by His teaching. And that is our aim as we make disciples. It is to not just teach people, but to see them transformed by the truth of Christ. Lastly, Jesus ends here with a great promise. He says, "...and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm with you always. I'm going to be frank and honest if I can this morning because I have a feeling that most of you are at least a little bit like me. So I'll ask a question, I'll put you on the spot. I wonder how many of you are like me in this. Do you ever find that sharing your faith, telling people about Jesus, is absolutely terrifying? I had a feeling. A lot of you are nodding your heads. Nobody raised your hands. <laughs> you don't really want to admit it in church, but let's be honest. You know I'm supposed to be sharing with people about the good news of Christ. And so here's this person. I need to talk to them. I know I do. Has anybody ever talked to you about Jesus? (laughs) Right? I mean, do you feel like that sometimes? We all do. For me to lead my neighbor or my uncle, or my co-worker, or my classmate, to to lead them to be a follower in Christ, it's hard to just open my mouth. To actually lead them to be a follower of Jesus seems like an absolute impossibility. I'm not up to that. I, I can't do that. Do you feel that way? If you do, you're normal. (laughs) Much less for you and me to even think about trying to reach the Kanuri people of Nigeria, or the Hui people of China, or the Nair people of India. It simply is beyond us. The mission is too big, it might as well be called Mission Impossible. Except for the fact that Jesus said right here, I am with you always, to the end of the age. Because it's not about our ability. It's not about our gifts. It's not about you know, that we are just a naturally outgoing person or that we are super smart or that we it's it's the command for every one of us to be engaged in making disciples. And He's not asking any of us to do what He is not going to come along and help us to do. If you and I will focus on following Jesus and purpose to bring others to follow Him, then He will equip, He will enable, He will empower us to do it. In the later 1700s, as the colonies here in the States were beginning their war of independence against England, back in England, in a little obscure village, there was a young man who, actually a teenager, who had begun an apprenticeship in a cobbler's shop making shoes. His name was William Carey. As a teenager, I don't remember exact age, probably around 16 or so, he became a believer in Jesus Christ. And things began to change in William Carey. William Carey, as he was working, began to realize that he was he was poor. He never had opportunity for education or much education. But he began to realize that God expects us to do more than just sit around and do the minimal of what we're doing. So William Carey wanted to learn more. He couldn't afford to go to school. He had to keep doing his apprenticeship. But he managed to borrow a book on Greek grammar. And William Carey taught himself Greek and Hebrew, and Latin, and <laughs> more languages. By the time he was 21, he had mastered all of those, plus Italian. He was working on French. He was working on German. And as he continued his studies and his reading, and he he began to realize that the peoples of the world needed Jesus. And the words of the Great Commission here began to grip his soul. And he wrote this one time in the quietness of his cobbler shop, the age of 21, he said, If it be the duty of all men to believe the gospel, then it is the duty of those who are entrusted with the gospel to endeavor to make it known among all nations. And then he sobbed out to the Lord in prayer. He cried out and said, Here I am, Lord. Send me. William Carey never claimed to be a guy of any great gifts. Matter of fact, he said he really didn't have any. He said he only had one ability. He said, I can plod. That means he just put one foot in front of the other. He said, I can prevail and pursue in any endeavor by plodding. And so he learned Greek, he learned Hebrew, he learned Italian, he learned Latin, he learned French, he learned German. He became convicted that the world needs Jesus and it becomes the duty of those who know Jesus to take the message of Jesus to the world. And so he went to the leaders of the churches around him and he met with a bunch of pastors and began to tell them his, his desire and what he thought needed to happen. One of the pastors stood up and said, Sit down, young man. If God wants to reach the heathen, he will do it without your help or mine. He discovered that the churches in his day had no interest in reaching the lost peoples of the world. And so William Carey just continues plotting, praying. And he began, he formed a little group of folks, a, a society to focus on missions. And the first time they met, he got up and he preached a message which is still in print today. He says Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. One year later, he and his family and some partners boarded a ship, left England and went to India. There they endured hardships that they never imagined. It was extremely difficult. They suffered greatly. After seven years of great suffering and hard labor, one Indian trusted Jesus as Savior. He continued laboring, plodding one foot as it were after another for 41 more years. He died at 73 in India. When he died, there were hundreds of believers the Bible had been translated into all of the major languages of India and portions of Scripture into 215 Indian dialects. Founded a school and there were many other things you can point to of, their, of the legacy of his labor for Christ in India. But even bigger than that, a legacy that because of William Carey's testimony, his life, because of his words, it moved a man named Adoniram Judson to go to Burma, which launched other Americans to go to missions. It moved a man named Hudson Taylor to go to China. It moved a man named David Livingston to go to Africa. And the great missionary movement of the 1800s was born. All of that because a man who made shoes said, Here I am, Lord, send me. You see, we ignore the mission, we forget the mission, we're afraid of the mission we even wonder, if I really embraced the mission, what could God do with me? Well, he took those 11 less than ordinary disciples in a few years turned the Roman world upside down with the message of Christ and beyond. And he took a cobbler 1,800 years later and turned the world upside down. And I just wonder what He would do through us if we would likewise embrace the mission and cry out with the prophet Isaiah and with William Carey, Here I am, Lord. Send me. He won't send most of us out there, but He will ask for all of us to embrace the mission here. By God's grace, may we do that. Father, we confess. We, it intimidates us. It, it frightens us. We're worried about the cost. We're worried about our ineptitude. The reality is Jesus is still the supreme authority. You have tossed the same keys to us that You tossed the disciples. You've given us the mission. It hasn't changed. We're to follow You, bring more followers, and we're to reach all peoples starting where we are. Lord, by Your grace, will You move in us and will you enable us to embrace the mission. And then may you accomplish your purpose through us. For the glory of Jesus, it's in his name we ask it. Amen.